Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. If you want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Has the stock market been too strong for its own good? As we turn the page to May, people are starting to worry about potential over-exuberance, which is one reason why the Dow lost 163 points today. S&P dropped 0.75%, NASDAQ declined 0.57%. In the first four months of the year, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has its best performance since 1987. NASDAQ, best performance since 1999. And nothing scares the daylights out of professional traders more then those two years, it's the specter of 87 and 99. Now, if you're a grizzled veteran like I am, you know those two years had a horrific pattern. They gave you rapid-fire rallies. It totally led to a pair of ignominious crashes. So the last thing anyone wants to hear is that 2019 is sure looking a lot like 87 or 99. So how worried should we be? Is it time to start doing some selling? Sell, sell, sell. Especially since the Federal Reserve just told us this very afternoon that inflation may be poised to make a comeback, meaning that their next move could be to tighten, potentially dashing a key pop to the bull. Okay, as someone who's traded through both periods, I have a unique perspective here. All right, not to toot my own torn too much, but when the market crashed in 87, I was entirely in cash. When the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, the inevitable result of the epic rally in 1999, I shorted the tech stocks to kingdom come. Remember, I was a hedge fund manager back then. I can't do that stuff now. I'm always looking for signs that history is about to repeat itself. So my first takeaway is very simple. Anytime you have a remarkable run, it never hurts to take something off the table. Nobody ever got hurt ringing the register. Bulls make money. Bears make money. But hogs, they get slaughtered. In other words, please don't be greedy. I don't actually believe that 2019 looks like 1987 or 1999, but I do believe in being disciplined, which is why we've trimmed our positions for my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Again, I don't expect a reprise of the 87 crash or the dot-com bust. Notice I've mentioned this several times because I do not want to scare people because I don't believe it's going to happen, but I think we'll be fine. However, the Dow's up more than 13% year-to-date. S&P's up nearly 17. Nasdaq's up 21%. This is the perfect moment, maybe, to just take a little off the table. Hey, come on. Many people have huge gains here. Uh, Let's be sensible. Why tempt fate? But trimming is all you should do. I wouldn't sell everything like I did in 87. I definitely wouldn't short like I did in Nasdaq in 2000. Why not? Because aside from the velocity of this run, 2019 has very little in common with either 87 or 99. Let's start with 87, okay? At a time when the 10-year Treasury supported a 9% yield, oh, man, is that high, and the economy was red hot, the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 rallied relentlessly. 
It was a nauseating nosebleed run with the big industrials really taking charge here. And that's all that you saw of that. It's kind of, look, very few breaks, right? At first, the rally made perfect sense, but as the averages marched ever higher, we reached a point where the S&P 500 was selling for 29 times earnings. That was the most expensive I ever recall in my career. What was really going on here? As someone who doesn't like to sleep, even to this day, I, I know why it happened. At the time, the Japan, Japan's economy, not ours, Japan's economy was ascendant, and the Japanese had enormous sums of money. Every morning at the opening, like clockwork, Japanese buyers would come in and take stocks up, lifting them to new highs. Every day, just kept going higher and higher. It was absurd, and we all knew it. Everyone who traded for a living accepted that our stock market was merely a plaything for Tokyo. And, and the, the buyers from Tokyo didn't seem to care one whit about things like valuation. At the same time, consultants started selling something called portfolio insurance. Don't worry, they don't use it anymore. The idea was they could use futures to protect you against any declines if the stock market rolled over. Big funds like that kind of protection. But portfolio insurance didn't work the way it was supposed to. Come October, the Japanese finally seemed to run out of ammo for the relentless buying. The huge competition for bonds quickly overwhelmed the stock market. Well, we also had a proximate cause. Treasury Secretary James Baker told the Germans they were abusing us with their exports, so we were going to devalue the dollar. The truth is, we were just ripe for a big sell-off. Once the averages started rolling over, though, the portfolio insurance kicked in, and suddenly the futures overwhelmed the stock market. Within days, the Dow and the S&P lost more than half of their value. Now, the circumstances are totally different here. We have much lower interest rates. The 10-year is currently at 2.5%, which means stocks are pretty much the only asset class in town. Meanwhile, the average stock in the S&P 500 trades at at 17 times earnings, not 29 times earnings like it did here, okay? There's been no ridiculous buying by foreign uh, countries that I've seen. Uh, There's nobody who's flush with cash coming from overseas. The only real parallel here is that stocks have rapidly soared, just like they did in in this period. Uh, But you know what? That's because we're bouncing back from a huge decline in the fourth quarter of 2018. There's just no comparison. I remember, think that this rally is based on the PAL December bear market and the undoing of that. All right, how about 1999? Now, look, the dot-com bubble made a ton of sense at the time, all right? You know, this is what you're looking at is this part before the denouement, okay? So focus right on this part right here. Uh, it, it was, this was all about, this here was all about the rise of the Internet. The bulls thought the web would change the way we do everything. Oh, you know what? It did. They, they were right there just really early. Uh, Cisco, Intel, and Microsoft were at the forefront of this move, but the real drivers of that rally have long since vanished. Telco equipment companies that don't exist, incubators, goodbye, websites, see you later. The more blue chip tech stocks sold for anywhere, you know, during those days they sold for 40, 80 times earnings, but more important, the more speculative ones were valued purely based on clicks and eyeballs. I used to joke that you need an ophthalmologist to try to figure out what a market was worth. That's nothing like today. Apple sells for 16 times extra year's earnings, even as it's within spitting distance of that trillion-dollar market cap. Facebook trades at 21 times next year's earnings. Amazon and Netflix trade on sales and subscribers more than earnings, but they're cheaper than they've been themselves in ages on those metrics. Even the rapidly growing cloud kings are nowhere near the outrageous levels we saw in 1999. That said, I'm not going to totally exonerate the NASDAQ. Look, we have got a tsunami of IPOs coming our way. Something that does remind me very much of the dot-com period. That is disconcerting to me. This week we've got seven deals, and many of them are technology companies that have been kicking around for ages. When you get too many IPOs in one sector, it's incredibly toxic to the rest of the group because all of this new supply tends to overwhelm the demand. Like any other market, when supply exceeds demand, prices, what do they do? They go down. 
So the current deluge of deals is unnerving to anyone who traded during the dot-com bubble, and I did, and I'm unnerved. Now, there's simply too many companies coming public at the same time, which is why I, I need to sound the clocks in here. For the record, next week's Uber IPO is the most likely proximate cause for a sell-off, at least if the deal ends up breaking down. When the Facebook deal blew up back in 2012, it sparked a correction. I think that could happen again with Uber if Uber's priced poorly. So if you're worried about this bull market because stocks have run up too much, too far, too fast, and it feels too much like 87 or, 80, or the 1999, the two years that I most dread, calm down. 2019 is nothing like 87 or 99. My only real fear here is the endless tide of new IPOs. And if that plays out that terrible, it's not going to cause a huge crash because that has nothing to do with the actual economy. Bottom line, oh, we have had a terrific run. So I am blessing you to do some selling tomorrow. But other than that, I think we're in fine shape. Somewhat overheated, most definitely. But I still think it makes sense to stay the course. Neil in Georgia. Neil! Hey, Jim. Mega booyahs from Georgia. That's a giant-sized booyah right back at you. Mm. Hey. Thank you. uh, Last Monday, after the close, TransOcean reported their earnings and beat on the top and bottom and provided a better outlook, an outlook for offshore drilling, but yet it dropped far worse than it did the last report they missed by a long shot. Mm-hmm. Am I missing something here? No, I, look, here's the deal. This in Schlumberger, which is a stock that unfortunately my Chapel Trust owns, but I do think is very cheap. They are based on offshore drilling, and the offshore drilling really has not come back the way any of these companies thought. So they may say that things are good, but they're not good enough, and that's what matters. Scott, am I home state of Pennsylvania? Scott! Okay, Jim, grew up in Narbers, Pennsylvania. Listen to you Sweet. every day. Sweet, thank you. Uh... You suggested, and I purchased Ring Central, uh, December. I think it was 2014. Sadly, I haven't bought, bought more, but I still own it. What do I do with it? Well, we like the Ring Central. We, you know, we spent. We, I, I think it's a very, very good company. Uh, you know what? If you just have an odd, an odd bit of it, it is up 40 percent. And like I say, no one ever got hurt taking a little bit of a profit. Uh, it is a good company, though. Let's go to Mike in Florida. Mike, Mike, Mike. Hey, Jimmy. What's up, Mike? Hey, I was calling about Tandem Diabetes today. Yes. Um, I know you've been bullish on this stock for a while. Uh, earnings just came in this morning. The stock's down a little bit. Um, there's been a lot of chatter about the other larger companies that have, have reported today. Right. Uh, I didn't hear anything about Tandem. Wanted to see oh, what you know, this stock on at one point was up eight, and then it was down three, then it was up six. Uh, like Dexcom was up four. Uh, look, these stocks all sold off at the end of the day. I like the quarter, and I like the Dexcom quarter, but this is what happens. you got a hot market and a lot of people short. It was fine, but it's high value. I do like it, though. Right, we've had a terrific run, so consider trimming. It's okay. I'm blessing you. Uh, other than that, though, I want you to stay the course. I'm just being realistic given how not, uh, let's just say, how much the market's run. Well, my money today, Beyond Meat is hoping to change the way we eat, and it just revealed its plans to uh, what price is going to come public. I'm eyeing the new future of food and telling you if it could be worth owning. Plus, shares of the so-called Netflix for textbooks. It's called Chegg. Missing its mark after earnings, but are investors grading the stock all wrong? I got the CEO. But first, it's a company up a whopping 150% over the past year. Could the move into AMD continue? I'm sitting down with its very bankable CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. 
follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. When Intel reported last week, the forecast was downbeat. And their commentary about the PC and the data center was so grim that the stock plummeted from 57 to 52 overnight. Now, if you took your cue from Intel, and many did, you had to believe the semiconductor business was facing some serious headwinds, including the data center, which had been red hot. But I told you there might be another explanation, that maybe Intel was simply losing market share to its competitors like AMD. Sure enough, when Advanced Micro Devices reported last night, they told a very different story. The company delivered a solid top and bottom line beat. Their guidance for the next quarter was pretty much in line. And the conference call was incredibly bullish, especially about the data center. It, it wasn't enough to send the stock higher. It lost 82 cents if you're being up more than a dollar. But then again, AMD was already up dramatically since the beginning of the year. So could this thing have more upside? Let's check in with Dr. Lisa Su, the visionary president and CEO of Advanced Micro Devices, to learn more about the quarter and where her company is headed. Dr. Sue, welcome back to Mad Money. Lisa. This day last year, your stock was at 11. It's gone up 16 points. Why? Jim, you know, it's been a great year. It's really been, you know, a great few years. And, you know, for us, it's all about products. And, you know, we have um, large markets. You know, we're in the PC business, the gaming business, and the data center business. These are great markets. And uh, we have been a share gain story. So we're all about our products and and gaining market share. This has been a uh, tumultuous time for some semiconductor companies. And what a lot of people cheered was that you held your outlook steady. Why is that good in this environment? Well, look, um, you know, semiconductors is a very exciting place. You do see things go up and down. But from our standpoint, you know, it's really about building a long-term plan. And when we started 2019, um, 2019 is a huge year for us. If you look at our product cycles, uh, we are, you know, launching new products in all of our markets. And so we said, hey, this is this is a revenue growth year for us. You know, starting out um, at a, you know, a, a lower point in the first quarter, but, you know, building up over the next couple of quarters. And we still see, uh, you know, tremendous excitement around our products. And well, so from that standpoint, that's where we're focused. I want to quote a, uh, a piece in a Wired magazine which said that PlayStation's next generation, everyone knows PlayStation, next generation console ticks all those boxes, starting with AMD's chip at the heart of the device. Why does it help to check boxes if they've got an AMD chip at the heart of the device? Well, we are um, so honored and proud to be part of Sony's next generation PlayStation. You know, this has been a really long-term partnership with them. Um, we love gaming. You know, we think gaming is a, uh, a really good secular growth market. And um, what we can do, you know, what we have done with Sony is really architect something, you know, for their application, for their special sauce. And so, uh, you know, it's a great, uh, great honor for us. We're really excited about what, um, uh, what the next generation PlayStation will do and happy to be a part of it. Well, you're a little modestly because you also do that for Amazon Web Services. Uh, you also do it for 
Apple, uh, and you do it for Google Cloud. So these are all your partners now, and they weren't your partners, weren't AMD's partners even a half dozen years ago. You know, you're absolutely right, Jim. You know, our focus is really on, you know, partnering with, you know, the best in the industry. And our, our view is that our technology, you know, with the customer's application can really uh, drive, you know, substantial technology as well as uh, revenue growth. And so, you know, for example, with Amazon, we're working very closely with them on their data center. Um, they've launched um, a number of new instances with us um, in the data center. And, you know, we believe that cloud is a great market for us. Uh, we're very happy when Google announced uh, their uh, cloud gaming solution, um, you know, here in March. Um, again, it's one of those things where we've worked for the last several years to really build a uh, you know tremendous partnership. Now, last year, uh, stock had some ups and downs. When it was really down at 18, you came on the other show. And you said, look, it's a continuum. It's a multi-year move. Don't look at this one snapshot. That's exactly how it played out, didn't it? Jim, I am a huge believer in the journey. You know, the journey is, uh, you know, you put together in our business, you put together roadmaps that sometimes take three or five years to play out. So, you know, we're making large bets. Um, we're really looking at, you know, wh- where's the market going? Wh- you know, where are we best in technology? And yes, it's a long-term play that, you know, has some short-term um, things as well, but uh, we're very much focused on the journey. All right, long-time competitor in your 50 years. Congratulations. Long-time competitor, uh, Intel announced that the, recently that they saw some weak particularly in some of the areas that I don't data center, but personal computer. And they did indicate for a lot of people that maybe things had slowed, particularly in the data center. But when I look at your numbers, it just seems like business as usual. Is that true? Well, first, thank you for um, the the 50th anniversary comment. Today is our 50th anniversary as a company, and we're proud of that. Um, Look, when when we look at the data center, I mean, it's a good market. It's a very good market. I mean, if you think about it, you know, people um, have much more data. We need much more compute. We need to analyze all of that. And we see it as a as a growth market for us. Now, um, you know, there are some, you know, short-term, um, you know, pockets of inventory that people talk about, but our story is really about share gains. And, um, you know, middle of this year, we're coming out with um, our next generation Epic processor. We call it Rome. Um, and it doubles the performance per socket. So, you know, it's a significant inflection point in technology. And, and that's what keeps us, you know, really excited about the prospects. All right. So the idea that the data center conceivably could actually have a major decline doesn't sound right. It could be a pause, but you still believe in the long-term growth. You wouldn't be adding all these different iterations. I I absolutely believe in the long-term growth. You know, there may be some short-term dynamics, but um, at the end of the day, uh, with, you know, all of the data that's out there and all the compute needs, um, it is a great market and it really appreciates great technology. And so, you know, that's where we differentiate ourselves, really focused on, you know, sort of high-performance computing. Now, I know there are a lot of professionals who watch the show and the, the people Home gamers may not understand this, but we're going to try to get it right. The gross margin for semiconductor is often so important. And the late great Andy Grove once barked at me that I said, well, why why is this obsession with being 63% margin, 62% gross margin? You have 41% uh, is your outlook. Can you ever get to those margins that that Andy Grove from Intel (laughs) thought are so important to profitability? Well, look, I, I totally believe in margin growth as well. You know, and, and as I said, this is a journey. Right. You know, we grew margin five points year on year. 
um, in the first quarter. You know, that's a pretty good move. And so the way we look at it is um, as our products get more and more adoption, we will grow our margins. And our long-term target is, you know, 40 to 44 percent. I think we're making good progress towards that. And more importantly, um, as our products get adopted, you know, I think we have just a, a broader, you know, business base overall. And, and it is important to point out revenues down, gross margin up is highly unusual. That's a great combination when you think of it. If revenues are going to come back and you've admitted there's a pause, but things could be in the second half, it's wrong. We, we definitely believe that there is a, um, a strong opportunity to grow. And then, you know, as you look at our products, as the new products come out, um, particularly in, you know, PCs with our Ryzen product line, um, in data center with, um, with our uh, Epic product line, and then uh, we have a new gaming chip coming out as well. And those are all scheduled for the middle of this year. So, uh, you know, we're excited about those. Uh, one last thing. Uh, when I first met you, I know that... Um at that point, my dog was named Nvidia, and I had always <laughs> worshipped Intel. I was an Intel hawk, and you told me, Jim, we are in the conversation, and we're going to stay in the conversation. So uh, I'm proud of you for telling me that, and you certainly changed my mind. Uh, next three five years, just going to continue to grow the company. Jim, we are so excited about what we have in store. I mean, I, I look at this and I say, hey, look, the last um, you know three or four years, we've really been. You know, focused on our products. That's how we're here in 2019. 2019 is going to be a big year for us. You know, we view it as, you know, a, a, um, a significant product cycle. And as we go, you know, three to five years forward, we have a lot of things in the hopper. We're working on many, many products. And so, you know, for, for our engineers, it's all about high-performance computing and putting the best out there. Well, terrific. I want to congratulate you again, 50 years, and all the great things that you've done, including that remarkable run since you've come in. That's Dr. Lisa Sue, president and CEO of AMD, which I think is a very inexpensive stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Look, you know we're getting flooded with initial public offerings here, and I've got very mixed feelings about almost all these deals. On the one hand, the IPO deluge is, in my opinion, the biggest potential threat to stocks here. Too much supply. Oversupply can slay even the strongest bull. But on the other hand, some of these fresh-faced IPOs can be incredible opportunities, especially if you can get a a piece of the deal uh, where it's priced. We've got seven companies poised to come public over the next two days. That's crazy. But there's at least one of them that seems very intriguing. I'm talking about Beyond Meat, the maker of plant-based vegan faux meat that's almost as good as the real thing. Beyond Meat, which will trade under the symbol BYND, and the, is expected to price between, say, 23 and 25. Now, originally, they were only looking for 21 at most. But the demand for this thing is so strong that they had to raise the price range and the deal size. So what makes Beyond Meat compelling, and more importantly, will the stock actually be worth buying if you can't get into the allotment, the actual deal? All right, here's how you, uh, why don't we do this? Let's play a Know Your IPO. Beyond Meat has become one of the fastest growing food companies in America because it's got a brilliant concept. There are millions of people who are vegan or vegetarian or just feel a little grossed out by eating the corpse of a dead animal. That's where Beyond Meat comes in. They've developed a plant-based alternative. It's got the same taste, same scent, same texture of real meat. The company uses a proprietary process to map out the chemical architecture of animal-based meat so they can copy it using plant-derived fats and proteins. Their end goal is to create something that's totally indistinguishable from the real thing, at least in terms of taste and a word that I really like called mouthfeel. You know, you may have seen this stuff in the supermarket. Uh, they're in 17,000 grocery stores, often in the meat aisle, or 12,000 restaurants and food service outlets. They sell Beyond Burgers, the company's ground beef alternative, everywhere from TGI Fridays to a smaller, more artisanal burger chain like Bear Burger, which used to serve elk and wild boar. Now they serve Beyond Burgers. And it's not just beef. 
Beyond Meat's also working on faux pork and faux poultry. But the big products right now are Beyond Burger and Beyond Sausage. The package, packaging looks like real meat. See, it doesn't look right? And the sizzle sounds real. It smells real. <laughs> and when you eat it, surprisingly, it's as close to the real thing. Although, you, you can definitely tell the difference. You can get them at Disney World. You can get them at Legoland. You can get them if you stay at the Hyatt. Rather than marketing this stuff solely to vegans and vegetarians, though, they make up less than 5% of the U.S. population. Beyond Meat's trying to attract regular meat eaters. Their whole pitch is, and I quote, eat what you love, end quote. It's just like real stuff, only healthier and without the animal welfare and sustainability worries that plague on millennial meal eaters who are so troubled by all this stuff. See, I mean, look, right? The company's trying to mimic the success of plant-based dairy industry, which you know we've always gotten a kick out of. Remember White Wave? We've seen explosive demand for soy milk and almond milk once they started marketing this stuff as a normal alternative to regular milk plant-based. Uh, now counts for 13% of the category. Wow. Beyond Meat wants to do the same thing with burgers and sausages. And 13% of the U.S. meat market would be worth $35 billion in annual sales. Now, so far, it's worked pretty well. The business is growing like a weed, the demand is off the charts, and the research labs keep working on new things. Which brings me to the financials. Beyond Meat's another IPO that's setting up, uh, putting up spectacular revenue growth. Last year, their sales grew, get this, 170% clip. That's a massive acceleration from 101% growth rate in 2017. And we know from management's guidance that the numbers just keep getting better. In the first quarter, Beyond Meat sales roughly tripled. Of course, the company's not yet profitable. Honestly, I, you know what? I don't, we really don't want Beyond Meat to be profitable at this early stage in their life cycle. They should be spending money like crazy to build out their production, distribution, innovation, fend off enemies. However, because the company's sales keep growing, their margins are headed in the right direction. 2017, the gross margins, what they make after the cost of goods sold, was negative 6.7%. Last year, it rose to plus 20%. Still, I don't expect to see positive earnings anytime soon. That's okay. They have hot new product, and they can afford to invest in its success. We know that because meat... Uh, we know that because uh, Beyond Meat's balance sheet is solid, especially since they're about to raise $250 million in the IPO. We know the company posted 200% plus revenue growth in the first quarter thanks to new deals with Carl's Jr., TGI Fridays, and A&W Cannon. Beyond Meat thinks its food service division grew by 459 to 488% in the first quarter. That's magnificent. Their gross margins risen to 25.6%, up from 20% last year. I bet you think that, wish that you had invented this company, right? Operating margin now at negative 18.5%, but it's already a major improvement from negative 31.8% last year. I think this is exactly the kind of growth story that the stock market tends to adore. In a year that's already been chock full of IPOs, Beyond Meat is the fastest grower of all of them including the techs. I doubt it'll be another lift where the revenue growth was already decelerating by the time the company came public. My own concern with Beyond Meat is that they have a very real competitor in the form of the Impossible Burger from Impossible Foods. And based on what I hear, the Impossible Burger tastes a little more like the real thing, even though Beyond Burger's healthier. Burger King bet one Impossible. You know what? They're selling out of the Impossible. Still, I'm betting there's more room for, uh, more than enough room for two players in this industry uh, because it's rapidly growing. If plant-based meat turns out to be anything like plant-based milk, there'll be enough business to go around and the upside could be enormous. Which brings me to the big question. How much is Beyond Meat worth? At the midpoint of its current price range, Beyond Meat's going to be very expensive. It's already trading at 17 times last year's sales, not earnings, sales. Of course, they can keep growing on a 200% clip this year. Then the stock is trading at less than six times 2019 sales, so I can get that. 
Put this in perspective. When Pinterest came public, it sold for 20 times last year's sales. Zoom Video came public at 50 times last year's sales. Given that Beyond Meat's growing faster than either of those very successful IPOs, I suspect investors will be willing to pay through the nose for this one. If the stock immediately spikes to 30 bucks, I'd be a buyer. At $35, we're reaching levels I think, frankly, you need to be cautious. But here's the bottom line. Beyond Meat looks like a fabulous company. My main concern here is simply that the deal will end up coming in way too hot because everyone knows it. Still, you got my blessing to do some buying if you can get it for less than $35 in the aftermarket, so long as you only use your discretion in a mad money portfolio, as this is the very definition of speculation. Doug in California. Doug. Hey, Jim. It's actually David in California. Gossamer Bio recently went public about 90 days ago. They have a former management team from Receptos that got bought out to Celgene. And since then, everyone's left Celgene, formed their own company, raised a bunch of money, and went public about 90 days ago. And they're just starting to get initiation coverage on their company. Would now be a good time to start? Well, I mean, that stock just got hammered. Uh, now, again, I happen to like the biopharmas. I tend not to like them right out of the chute because, it, look, if they were someone was going to buy the company rather than, you know, a lot of these are for takeovers, they would have bought it already. But uh, remember, for spec, if you put it away, I think you'll be okay. All right, guys, this Beyond Me could be a very interesting deal, but I don't want it to come in too hot. You've got my blessing to do some speculative buying on it because it is such a fast grower. Much more mad money yet. I'm hitting the books with Chegg CEO to find out how the company's earnings stack up. Then between music, TV, payments, Apple seems to have it all. So how should you be playing the tech titan? I'm eyeing the company after earnings. And order calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. When a company reports earnings and a stock gets hit, that doesn't necessarily mean it had a bad quarter. Sometimes it just means that expectations were too high or maybe the stock had run into it. Take Chegg, which is a company that used to be known for textbook rentals, but now it's much more. It's an on-demand, interconnected learning platform. The company provides students with all sorts of digital services. They can help you with your homework. They can help you pick your classes. They can help you decide where to go to college or show you how to get a scholarship. Boy, did we ever need that. As well as, of course, textbook rentals. Thanks to that transformation, Chegg has been an incredible long-term performer. Do you know this stock is up about 550% over the past five years? However, the company reported on Monday night, and it had run up dramatically, as I mentioned. So when Chegg delivered some good results, uh, give me a solid top and bottom line beat. Management raising their full year forecast well, wasn't quite good enough. Stock got rocked, fell 39 to 35. But this wasn't a bad quarter. Okay, it had some hair on it. Chegg's free cash flow. Some people thought it was a little light. Subscriber growth, some said it was slightly below expectations. It wasn't perfect, but few are. It was still real strong. I think this pullback in the stock could turn out to be a terrific buying opportunity. Uh, don't take it from me, though. Let's dig deeper with Dan Rosenzweig. He's the president and CEO of Chegg. Get a, get a sense of this quarter, but more important, the long-term prospects. Mr. Rosenzweig, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see it's you, Dan. Booyah. 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 Hello, Booyah. My right friend. back at you. And, and a big hello from Zach Ertz. Oh, Zach so Ertz, of course. He, who is he now nuts. watches Mad Money because he needs to learn about investing in case this football thing doesn't work out. Well, he's our, uh, the Eagles' <laughs> unbelievable tight end, who uh, was really the star of the league this year. And I always have Ertz, and I've got a second Ertz now because yeah, well, he's, he's a, a terrific guy. He's a really big fan. You have done something remarkable over the years. You went from what is a bit of, some people say pedestrian, but fabulous if you're a parent, <laughs> saving in textbooks, to really offering kind of a soup to nuts platform of yeah. which you're going to be, I think, part of the subscription economy by the end of this year. So yeah. Tell us about the transformation. Well, you know, it's interesting. The transformation actually started on your show. <laughs> um, you know, we hit an all-time low several years ago, and you were kind enough and generous enough 
to give us the opportunity to articulate um, where we were going. And you said to people, look, just pay attention and see what happens. And that's all believe, we had asked for. I believe, and you came you on. Did. And that's how I knew to believe. Because yeah. you came on a bad day. Stock had been down. And you just 38%. Said, right. <laughs> and you said, listen, here's, we're going to stick there and we're going to do this. And I said, I'm a believer. And you did. Well, and so it started here. And so what we believe is this, which is if you ask yourself such just a couple obvious questions, we believe in believing in the inevitable. Do you think more people are going to need to learn? You think they're going to need to learn more things more often? You think they're going to have to constantly invest in themselves for their future and for their careers? You think they're more likely to do it online? And do you think they're going to need help? And the answer is we believe in all of that. And so... Every time we come in in the morning, it feels like the TAM expands because there's more I was going to ask you, the total adjustable market yeah. from the time that we have talked about your company oh, has gone from being a million, but actually being now one of the largest markets in the world. We shouldn't just say domestic. Right. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. So the first time we tried to do a TAM, we thought it would maybe 8 million people. Right. Now we realize there's 3.5 billion people in the world that are under the age of 30. All of them need to learn STEM. All of them need to get educated. All of them are going to need support. Most people are going to learn remote. Most people are going to need help, human help, technology help. And technology wasn't available 10 years ago to do these. Now it can scale. So just in the U.S. alone, we feel like the TAM is 36 million people in high school and college. Then you add to that the tens of millions of people that have partial degrees. Then you look at all the people who are trying to improve themselves going to some of these boot camps. Nobody's out there supporting them with the exception of Chegg. And the newest one, which is really not a surprise, it was inevitable, but if you look at the number of nonprofit online-only schools, yes. there are now millions of students learning that way, mm-hmm. of which Chegg is now building our products and services to be able to support them as well. So it just keeps getting bigger. Well, I think that one of the things you left out is, is that uh, from the point of view as a parent, yes. when I asked my daughter uh, about Chegg, she says, Dad, I saved you $1,000. Yeah. All of these things are prohibitively expensive. Yes. And you, there aren't many forces other than you who are trying to keep the price down of education. Well, you saw a big merger today between McGraw-Hill and Sengage, yeah, a proposed merger. And Well, I thought it was inevitable because right. the fact of the matter is when we invented the textbook rental model, we, that business model, which was high-priced books, very expensive, where they made money yeah. in new books, we took that market away. It wasn't our goal. Our goal was to save oh, students money right. and help them learn more and get uh, content more accessible. So what you're seeing now is such a dramatic change that we're able to use technology to make it personalizable, on-demand, um, and relevant, and expand the curriculum or the support of the curriculum and do so for $14.95 a month. That's the most phenomenal thing because it's right once used many times. We have 28 million pieces of content right. in the system, and, and students ask 7 million new questions a year. Now, uh, I've always looked at your site, and you says because full price is overpriced, that was protectable. <laughs> but now the lead, the lead is when homework gets tough, get tougher. Right. How do you get tougher? So we believe that students will invest in themselves. So we chose to go direct to the student, not through the institutions, no middlemen, no politics, none of that stuff. So if students are willing to invest in themselves, we're willing to invest in them. So if you take our primary product, Chegg Study, you can do step-by-step solutions. You can ask Q&A, of which we have 28 million questions, but you can get an answer back in four hours if we, haven't, we don't have that question answered. Mm-hmm. You can watch any one of our 20,000-plus videos now, or you can connect it to an online expert uh, for as little as 50 cents a minute. So if you're willing to challenge yourself and study, then we're willing to help you go through the process of learning how to do it. 
I, I just want to ask. I'm not going to so say bring his name. It up. There was a short seller who said that maybe you're violating some rules yeah. about uh, that about this, the kind of products you're talking about, and also that uh, that a lot of schools might not like you. Now, my daughters, I go and they say, "Listen, schools encourage Chegg." So, That's just right. where do you stand on these? Well, obviously, we're against anything that does fire code, yeah. a violation of honor code, or cheating of any kind. And in fact, um, you know, the technology we've written. So, if a student asks. Uh, for us to do their homework, the technology will read it, reject the student, reject the tutor, those kinds of things. So we built all those technology okay. in to be able to pre- uh, prevent those things. Also, we own all of our content, so all of our IP is correct. And unfortunately, you know these things with short sellers, right. they can combine a lot of different variables. Um, the companies, the services that they were referring to aren't ones that Chegg offers. So, oh, for example... Really? Download someone's papers. We don't do that. No, you don't do that. I you know upload that. your paper to us, and we help you understand um, your, whether or not you've plagiarized, and we let you know, and we educate you. We teach you grammar. We teach you sentence structure. We do your citations and bibliographies. No, we do not write your paper. Right. No, we do not have papers that you can download. So, you know, look, short sellers will do what they're going to do. Right. We don't pay that much attention to it, but we're completely the other way. And I think that's why we're going to have nearly 6 million paying subscribers to our combined business by the end of this year, which is 25% of the college market. No, it's good. So I you're, think, and you're right, professors do assign us now. Right. They do want us to support because you know what? They're overburdened. Right. They don't have enough time. There's no labs. There's no tutoring. You have to realize 70% of of kids, Jim, they go to college at state schools. 40% of them are working 30 hours a week or more. Their average age is 25. 25% of them already have children. Who's here to support them? Only check. And that's why our numbers are going Let's like leave this. it at that. Uh, you are integral from uh, the people my daughters know and well, thank my staff. Integral. That's Dan Rosenzweig. He's president and CEO of Chegg, the symbol CHGG. You heard the story. Then money's back after the break. It is time to the And then the light round is over. Are you ready, Skeet? Time for the light round quiz. Remember, let's start with Alonzo in Virginia. Alonzo. Oh, yeah, Jim. Alonzo from Virginia here. Thank you for coming. What's up? Thank you. Love your show, man. Watch it every night. Yes. I am here with my beautiful 10 year old niece, Haley. She has a question for you. All right. I like you. That's what I say. And uh, Coles is run by the fabulous Michelle Goss, who's doing a great job. Heavily shorted stock. That makes no sense. I know the quarter's not going to be that great, but I say, bye, bye, bye. And thank you for calling. Now, tell go to Brian in Texas. Brian. Hey, Jim. Booyah from Houston. Oh, Brian, I hear you. What's up? Well, listen, I'm calling about XOM, ExxonMobil, short-term versus long-term. Uh, in, uh, yeah, look, you're not going to get hurt with a 4% yield uh, buying Exxon at these prices, but it's no longer my favorite. By the way, I think Mike Worth's doing a dynamite job at Chevron, although uh, my friend David Faber made me feel like, wow, maybe they're going to come in and bid for Anadargo after Oxy. But I do prefer Chevron to Exxon. I need to go to Victor in Connecticut. Victor! Booyah, Jimmy. I'm up 15% on Delta Airlines. Buy, sell, or hold. It's a very cheap stock at eight times earnings. I'm not going to tell you to, to ring the register. I'm going to tell you that it's cheap. Let's go to June in New Jersey. June. Hi, I'm in Belmar, Jim, your summertime neighbor. Yes, absolutely. Good to have you on the show. Hi, Dr. Jim. I want to thank you for your expertise and your... Opinions. I've listened to you for many, many years. Thank you so this much. This is the first time I've been able to get through. <laughs> oh, well, we got to so, clear that up. 
Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> right on. I love the Anyway, uh, my concern is Allergan. I've yeah, I'm actually going to tell you that you need to be concerned. That, uh, by the way, Appaloosa lost the fight to be able to split up the chairman and CEO, Brent Sars. My problem is we need to see some earnings momentum. We need to see that drug against migraines approved. And I don't know if it's going to get approved soon enough to be able to help what I think is a business that I'm concerned about, the franchise Botox. Let's go to Jack and Massachusetts. Jack! Jim, Jim, what are your thoughts on Arrowhead Pharmaceuticals, ARWR? Oh, I looked at Arrowhead recently, and I didn't see that much. You know, everyone's so excited about it. I don't get that. I have been saying that it's absolutely okay to own stocks that have to do with slicing and dicing of genes, but I'm not going to endorse it for anything other than speculation. How about we go to Brad in Michigan? Brad! Hey, Jim, thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Um, just wanted to see what you thought about Wayfair. I know yeah, it's unbelievable. Tomorrow. I remember what Bed Bath & Beyond could have bought Wayfair. Wayfair is a, a real competitor. And I have to tell you, the shorts who have been going against Wayfair forever have been dead wrong. I think Wayfair represents a great bargain. Uh, it, the products, the stock's not a bargain. It's very expensive. But I'm not going to go against it. Let's go to Joanna in Florida. Joanna. Hi, Jim. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, I'm it's such probably- a big fan. <laughs> Oh, I've been a fan nice. for more than seven years. Plus, I've read all your books, oh, and thank I call you. you my stock market guru. There you go. I like to be a guru. <laughs> hey, uh, Jim, the stock I'm interested in buying is VRNS. Yeah, data management security. I mean, look, I've got to tell you, I, I've looked at. I have a. I'm recommending pretty much every cybersecurity stock because it's a great secular theme. But my favorite is Palo Alto Networks, P A N W, and that. Hey, Jim, who's other? Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. You want to know the most incredible thing about the quarter that Apple reported just last night? iPhone sales were down 17%. Company's flagship product, the thing has controlled the stock's trajectory for over a decade, is experiencing a fairly steep decline. And what happens? The stock explodes higher, rallying nearly 10 bucks or 5%, earning itself a trillion-dollar market capitalization earlier today. And at one point before Chairman Jay Powell kiboshed the market, it was up 15 how is that possible, you ask? Because I've been telling you for ages, Apple's going through a paradigm shift. The old Apple was a gadget maker, maybe the best gadget maker in human history. But at the end of the day, it sold tech hardware. Now, though, Apple is transforming itself into a powerhouse service provider. And pretty soon, the subscription revenue from all those services will be worth more than the technology itself. The stock caught fire today because it's become impossible to deny the power of that metamorphosis. Last night, management told us that they have an installed base of 1.4 billion devices. Those devices are producing 390 million paid subscriptions. That's up from 270 million a year ago and headed to 500 million in the not-too-distant future. That translates into $11.5 billion in very high margin sales, up 16% year-over-year. Nice. And when I say this is a paradigm shift, what I mean is that within two years, this subscriber base will profoundly define the way we judge the stock of Apple. We're already well on our way to a world where the key metric is subs, not iPhone sales. Consider how far they've already come. A few years ago, when Apple first started breaking out their service revenue stream, it really wasn't much. Let's call it an afterthought. Who cared about fees for iCloud backups or the App Store or service contracts? I mean, stuff's so pedestrian, right? Initially, the service stream seemed like a nice, high-margin business, not much of a game-changer. The analysts who follow the stock are laser-focused on iPhone sales. 
the unit number. They didn't even care about other hardware like wearables, which have been growing like crazy. And I think the monomaniacal emphasis on the phone led them astray. Over time, the service revenue stream kept growing and growing and growing. Finally, Apple itself embraced the transition. They realized that this is a fabulous high-margin business, and they doubled down on it. On the November 2018 conference call, the company said it would cease breaking out handset numbers because they were not really a helpful indicator of the health of the company. Then at the beginning of the year, Apple pre-announced some awful numbers. The stock got clobbered. Many people saw this as a nefarious move, the iPhone sales stake. So, of course, they don't want to give you the details. I thought it was a brilliant decision because it shines a light on how Apple stock should and will be valued in two or three years. In the future, it's going to be seen as a subscription company with a terrific razor, razor blade business model. The phones are the razor. The services are the blade where they really make the money. Maybe it'll be followed by consumer packaged goods analysts someday. Why does this matter? Because we value subscription companies with tons of recurring revenue very differently from the way we value tech hardware companies. Before Apple started breaking out its service revenues, uh, the stock tended to sell for about 11 times earnings. Now it sells for 16 times earnings because it's got a better mix of businesses, both hardware and services. If not for wearables and the service stream, Apple would probably be valued more like HP Inc., which trades at about nine times earnings. And I think this process of revaluation is still ongoing in the future when more investors view Apple through the lens of the subscription economy. I'm betting will be willing to pay maybe as much as 20 times earnings from the out years. After all, the stock's stream, it's all stickier, right? The more consistent, more likely a consumer package good company with tremendous customer loyalty, that's how we have to view it. What would Apple be worth if it used that subscription economy price to earnings multiple right now? How about about $260, maybe more? It's only a $210 stock. First, because the paradigm shift is still ongoing and it's happening too fast for most people to get their heads around it, so you don't really get a lot of people talking the numbers like I'm talking. Second, I think even Apple itself has been taken by surprise by this new thesis. Remember, they don't really think of themselves this way. To Tim Cook, who's a fabulous CEO, and his team, Apple's a technology company. That's synonymous with truly breathtaking innovation, and it is. That's true. As he's an, uh, look, he's an undeniable lover for the product, as am I, as for all of these things, for the wearables. You know, there was a big spike in iPad sales, resurgent. There's much too money, though, being made in subscriptions to ignore it anymore. And that's the way we're going to focus on it. In short, sooner or later, everyone will be on the same page, which means Apple could have a lot more upside as we begin to calculate the lifetime value of every sub. That's why I always say, own it, don't trade it. With this quarter, we got yet another reason to stick with Apple. And even after today's terrific run, I think it'll turn out to be a real bargain because of its embrace of the subscription economy. Stick with Craig. Like I said, it's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.